Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Fasting. It's one of the best biohacks because there are so many benefits to your body and it doesn't even cost anything. Fasting can help you live longer, increase your brain power, and even turn back your biological age because it induces something called autophagy. Autophagy swaps out old or damaged parts of your cells with fresh new ones. There's now an awesome product called Spermidine Life that actually tricks your body into thinking it's fasting, which triggers autophagy without any actual fasting required. Spermidine Life is extracted from non-GMO plants and it's super clean. Fast smarter, not harder. Add Spermidine Life to your stack today, whether or not you practice intermittent fasting. Go to spermidinelife.us, use code ASPRI25 for 25% off your first purchase. If your everyday routine looks like mine used to, it includes some bloating and gas, trouble losing weight, digestive issues, and probably microbial imbalances. When I learned that my gut microbiome was directly linked to all that stuff going on, I knew I had to do something, but it was hard to know what to do. And that's how I found out about Viome and the Viome Full Body Intelligence Test. Viome stands out because it uses gene expression analysis, which is RNA, instead of DNA to figure out what my body needs. They even use information they learn about you to create 100% custom formulated supplements and personalized probiotics just for you. Viome gave me the information I needed to really upgrade my health. I've known the team at Viome for almost 10 years and worked with them on their recommendations. It's real science. Now, you can give it a try, too. Go to Viome.com slash Dave and save $110 on the full body intelligence test. Today's cool fact of the day is that, well, Americans, and probably Canadians, too, but Americans have a lot of stuff. There are about 300,000 items in the average American home. Uh, side note, in my home, that includes just those little hair bands for my daughter. There's got to be 300,000 of those. But... of the world's kids live in America, but they own 40% of the toys consumed globally, which is kind of shocking, actually. And most U.S. homes have more television sets than people, and American women will spend more than eight years of their lives shopping. Although I don't know that that's a bad thing, because if they're shopping for really good food, it was probably something that was kind of necessary. But So we'll, we'll give everyone a... Uh, everyone, including all the guys who go shopping for food, a pass on that one. But if they're shopping for like plastic toys, we got a problem. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words, What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. All right, let's get right into this before we get into the minimalism. We've got to talk about Marie, uh, what's her last name again? (laughs) Kondo. Condo. So for, as I, for, the, I have, for the people who don't know her, she she wrote a book called The um, Life Tidying Magic of Life Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so I, the reason that, that that sticks in my mind, and the reason I have a a, traum, a traumatic block against her name, 
I, I like to call her Marie Komodo, like Komodo dragons. <laughs> right. Because uh, my wonderful wife, Dr. Lana, read the book. And I read the book, too, and it's actually a good book. I, mm. I don't have a problem with it. But that meant that for one week, there was a failed experiment, uh, which I rebelled against, to move my coffee maker and coffee bean grinder and coffee making equipment off the counter, under the counter, so that every morning I had to wake up and pull out all my coffee making equipment, set it on the counter, make coffee, and like, no, that there are limits, and when you hide coffee making equipment, so you can't get access to it quickly, I'm sorry, like that was, that it was, it was something snapped in me, and I just <laughs> set the coffee maker on the counter and I left it there, and uh-huh. I think maybe I'm happier for that. Does that make me a bad person, Joshua? <laughs> I think you and I, uh, we, we worship at the same altar, because uh, the same coffee altar, that is. You, you see my, my kitchen right now, and it is, the, the countertops are clutter-free, except for my co- coffee equipment, so the scale, the, the you know, the pour-over device, the, the, the bean <laughs> grinder, and, and so yeah, we, we, you and I share a similar sentiment. And I think the difference between some of the stuff that, that Ryan and I talk about at TheMinimalists.com versus someone like Marie Kondo or a lot of professional organizers, I think those those people can be very helpful. But but for me, I'm much more concerned with the why-to side of things than the, the how-to side of things. I think, I think you and I instinctually know the the 67 ways to declutter your closet or whatever the, you know, the, the clickbait blog post title might be. And, and so you'll never see me write something like that because I'm not as, as concerned with the how-to. I want to know the purpose behind simplifying. Like, what, why do we want to do this? And, and that gives you the leverage you need to then figure out the how-to, which is appreciably easier than, than understanding the purpose behind minimalism. So what is the purpose of minimalism? What do you get out of this? Well, for me, I, I think of minimalism as the thing that gets us past the things so we can make room for life's most important things, which actually aren't things, physical things at all. And so for me, the, the purpose has to do with with the experiences we have after the clutter. I think the, the initial bite at the apple is removing the excess stuff in our lives. As you started out the show and you mentioned the average American household has 300,000 items in it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been to Canada. It's very similar. We've done tours in the UK and Australia. And, and our American dream, supposed American dream, has permeated the borders to all of the Western world. And, and what we're realizing is as we're acquiring more and more stuff, there's nothing inherently wrong with consumption, right? Like we all need some stuff. There's no doubt about it. I'm, I'm not advocating a life of asceticism or being a monk living in a cave. What I'm advocating is bringing the things into my life that add the most value, that augment the experience of living as opposed to living to accumulate more stuff. And so for me, the purpose of minimalism has to do with the benefits we experience once we're on the other side of, of decluttering. So you start with looking at the stuff that you have. And, and if you were anything like me, yeah, of course, I had I, I had, I was wildly successful, like you were, in a very narrow sense, right? I was out of shape. I weighed 80 pounds more, more than I weigh now. My relationships were in shambles. I didn't feel creative or passionate about what I was doing, even though I had an ostensibly successful career. I was uh, the director of operations for 150 retail stores, which I know is really ironic with the whole minimalism thing. <laughs> but, but, but I really felt like I wasn't growing. I wasn't contributing to the world around me. And I was so focused on so-called success and achievement, and especially in, in our culture, that means the accumulation of stuff, these sort of 
trophies of success. So I had the the big house with more toilets than people and more TVs than people as well. Uh, I had the, the luxury cars, plural. I had the, the closets full of expensive clothes, the full basement that was you know, jam-packed with stuff, and all of these things that were supposed to make me happy, but they, they really weren't doing their job. And, and, and you know, I'd worked so hard to climb this corporate ladder to achieve this this level of success, but I, I didn't feel successful. Instead of success, I had debt and anxiety and stress and discontent, and I was kind of overwhelmed working 60 or 70 or even 80 hours a week, yeah. uh, uh, forsaking the things that were most important. And I got to this point in my life by my late 20s, I'm 35 now, by my late 20s, I I was I didn't even know what I was focused or what I what was important to me and, and so I didn't know what to focus on because of that and and so of course I just kept you know, not looking down and trying to continue to climb that corporate ladder and and I realized that you know these things that that I had worked so hard for you know, they weren't doing their job they weren't they weren't adding joy or contentment or fulfillment and I certainly wasn't happy with all the stuff it's interesting. I went through a, a similar thing. I made $6 million when I was 26, lost out when I was 28. And I, when I got the $6 million, it wasn't all in cash. There were stock options too, but it was a lot of cash. Right. And I'm like, cool, I'm, I'm set for life. What do I want to do? But I know I'll be happy when I make $10 million. So I just need to push a little bit harder. Like literally, I told myself that. I told my friends that. And fortunately, at the time, most of my friends were also working at the same company and all dealing with the same thing. And what I realized was that I was actually no more or less happy with $6 million or without $6 million. It was like, what do you do with every day that makes you happy and, and what's going on inside your head? But why wouldn't you have all the trappings of success and be happy? Yeah, I, I'm not saying that you can't. I'm saying that quite often the, the things get in the way and... and, and and keep us from figuring out what's important in, in our lives. And, and so, like I said uh, a moment ago, when I was, uh, I was essentially morbidly obese. I mean, I weighed 240 pounds, and, and I, I just, you know, I was all gut and, and chin, basically. And, and <laughs> I, was, I was, not only was I just fat, though, I felt like crap, right? And that, yep. as you know, um, from from all of your journeys and whether it was the being overweight or with with the toxic mold i mean you realize when you feel like crap every other area of your life it, forget about being optimized it's not even functioning right <laughs> and and i think the stuff in a way is is you know, the metaphorical toxin for many of us because we think we need these things to to uh bring us status or it's part of our identity and and, and there's nothing inherently wrong with the stuff. Uh, the question is, what are the things that truly add value to my life? And, and so often when people ask me, well, what is minimalism? I'll answer that question with just a question. I'll say, how might your life be better with less? And, and by reframing the question that way, it helps people identify what the benefits might be for them. For me at first, it was, it was regaining control of my finances because even though I made really good money, I spent even better money, and that equation just doesn't work. You could do the back of the napkin math, and, and so I'd racked up six figures worth of debt, about half a million dollars worth of debt if you include my house, and, and I felt 
I felt stuck under the weight of that debt. But then as I started thinking about, well, how might my life be better with less? Well, I could improve my health because I'd have more time to focus on that. I could improve my relationships. I, I, could, uh, I could finally work on that passion project I want to work on, or I could do yoga, or whatever the thing is that I, I'm, I'm throwing up all these barriers that, that keep me from, from doing that thing. And then the things I do bring into my life, I ask another question does this add value to my life? And what I mean by that is, does it serve a purpose or does it bring me joy? And I get everything else out of the way. And so by, by figuring out, okay, here are some things that will actually serve a purpose in my life or they'll bring me joy if it's artwork or music or something like that. And so I don't think minimalism is sort of one size fits all. And that was one of the things that was really appealing to me at first. When, when I first uh, stumbled across this thing called minimalism, it was actually at a, at a low point in my life. My my mother had died and my marriage ended both in the same month. And I was living in Dayton, Ohio. And, and like I said, I, I was ostensibly successful, right? I had climbed this corporate ladder. Uh, everyone who around me wanted to achieve the level of success I'd had by age 27. And, and then these two events forced me to look around and sort of take an inventory of my life, figure out what had become my life's focus. And then I stumbled, within a month, I stumbled across this thing called minimalism. And at first it was this guy named Colin Wright. He runs a blog called exilelifestyle.com. And he was like this young, cool guy who everything he owned fit into his backpack. And he was traveling to a new country every four months. And he didn't even pick the country he was going to. His readers at his website voted on his next country. And that was kind of cool and admirable, but you know, I kind of like owning a kitchen table and I like having things that won't fit in the overhead storage compartment on an airplane. And so I said, well, maybe this minimalism thing, while it's neat, it's only for these young, traveling, peripatetic writers. And With, it's not without kids, by the way. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> without kids. But then, of course, it's, I still. It's shockingly easy to live a four-hour work week when you don't have kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and so uh, I, I figured out, well, you, if you were to throw any sort of complications into this equation, this minimalist lifestyle wouldn't work. But then, of course, I, I stumbled across some other folks as well, people like Leo Babalta, who I'm sure you know. He, he runs a website called Zen Habits, and he's a father of six. And when I first stumbled across him, he had kids everywhere from entering college to elementary school and sort of everything in between. And he and his wife, Eva, lived in the city in, in San Francisco. And yet they were minimalists. And then I found uh, people like Joshua and Kim Becker, uh, who are in the documentary, and, and they have two kids in the suburbs of Phoenix, or Courtney Carver and her teenage daughter and her husband in Salt Lake City. And I realized, like, oh, wait a minute. There are all these different flavors of minimalism. It's not as simple as, well, here's the, the list of the hundred items you should own, and then you'll be happy. I, I wish I had that list because, man, yeah, how, how easy would that be, right? But it, it just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so uh, the things that add value to my life may not add value to yours, but, but also the things that add value to my life today at age 35 may not add value at age 40. And so I have to continue to question the things that I keep in my life and the new things that I, that I bring into my life. You don't ever get there because it's like a horizon. Once you get to a, a horizon, of course, there, there's always going to be that, that next horizon. And so for me, I, I really found out that, you know what, if I want to live this, if I want to simplify my life, live a, a minimalist lifestyle or something that was close to that, 
I'd have to figure out what my own recipe for simple living was because my life wasn't going to look just like Colin Wright, who's traveling all over the world. It wasn't going to look like Leo Babalta because I also didn't want to have six kids. And, and it was probably going to be somewhere in between there. So I started tweezing ingredients from all of these different minimalist recipes and, and sort of creating my own flavor of living a more intentional life. It, something interesting happened uh, just yesterday. My, my daughter, who's nine, she came up and she said, Daddy, can we have less presents for Christmas? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, like what happens? Like this is unnatural. And she's like, last year we just had too many presents and, and it was just too much. She's like, I, I just want like a really good present. And she was really, it wasn't like someone told her to say it. She was just like, you know, I, this is what I want. But they go to Waldorf school and they have all sorts of interesting, you know, neurological developmental things they do. But it, it was kind of touching because you know, she, she kind of had the same vibe going on. But I think a lot of people who are listening right now, they're actually commuting to work or they're actually listening to this while they're at work on, on iTunes. And I mean, this has to come off as a little bit like, like self-serving sanctimonious. So you want me to like, you know, give up my nanny, uh, which is, uh -huh. you know, helping me to stay sane and, you know, live in a smaller place so I get lower quality sleep and I like eat less quality food because you got to have good income to eat good food. And like sure. some of these sacrifices, I, I mean, are you in a cult? <laughs> I know that people are, people have to be thinking that. Right, right. right. yeah, you, you know, um, uh, no, and here's the cool thing. I don't want anyone to, to do anything. I'm not out proselytizing. I'm not trying to convince people to live as a minimalist. I'm not jumping up and saying, look at me, I'm a minimalist, and, and you should be a minimalist too. What I found is that there's a recipe that works really well for me, and I've seen it work now for millions of other people at this point. And, and, and what, I've, what I've learned is that by sharing this recipe, you're not going to follow exactly what, what I've done. You're going to find a few ingredients that work well for you, and, and, and you don't have to call yourself a minimalist. In fact, that's the first thing I recommend not doing because then all of a sudden – you know, you, you set up these expectations and it may turn people off right away. But if you start simplifying your life without jumping up and saying, you need to do this too, other people start to notice. And for me, when I f first started simplifying, this was back in uh, 2000, toward the end of 2009 after, after those two events happened to me, I, I just started letting go. And, and I, didn't, I didn't say to anyone, well, I'm getting rid of stuff and, and I'm becoming a minimalist and, and I'm going to own less. I just started letting go. And as I let go, it was interesting. About six to eight months in, people at work started commenting. They'd say things like, you seem a lot calmer. You seem less stressed. What is going on with you? You seem so much nicer. And, and it gave me the opportunity, opened the door for me to talk about how I had simplified my life, how I'd got rid of the excess stuff. But it's also not about, used an interesting word, it's not about sacrifice. I don't, I, the word I, I would use is, I would say it's not about deprivation. Minimalism it, for me has never been about depriving myself of that which is essential or, or beneficial to my life. In fact, the opposite is true. Uh, I, I want to, I, well, I get far more value from the few things that I own now than if I were to water those things down with hundreds of thousands of other items. And, and so by, by letting go, the weird paradox is I actually get more value from the stuff because I have less of it. And all of the things that I have are, are very intentional. Although if you visited my home today, you, you probably wouldn't walk in and say, wow, this, this family, it's me and my partner, uh, Becca, and and we have a three-year-old, Ella, you wouldn't walk in and say, oh my God, these people are minimalists. You'd probably just walk in and say, wow, they're really tidy. 
And, and you'd ask how I keep things so organized. And, and I tell you, the, or, the easiest way to organize your stuff is to get rid of most of it. Get rid of that stuff that's in the way. And, and, and by, by doing that, by questioning the things that are in my life, I've realized that, that I'm, not, I'm not telling other people to sacrifice or deprive themselves. I will temporarily deprive myself from time to time to see whether or not something adds value to my life. So I'll do these interesting little stoical experiments from time to time where I will live without a cell phone for a month or two or I'll go without home internet. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm at an office here at, at University of Montana right now and, uh, because, because I don't have internet at home. And so I'll do these little experiments not because I want to deprive myself, because when I bring the thing back into my life, it allows me to bring it back in in a much more deliberate way and be more intentional using that thing going forward. So you're kind of doing intermittent fasting for stuff that you wanted but decided that you could go without for a while just so that you'll appreciate it when you finally can eat again. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's a great way to put it, Interme- intermittent fasting for stuff, for sure. Right. Uh, yeah, letting go for a temporary period of time and then, and then bringing it back in. It is, it's a bit more uh, uh, nutritious, so to speak. I was talking with, uh, with Tim Ferriss uh, a little while ago, and he was saying that he likes to, like, once a month, like, live in a tent, not change his clothes, like, wear a cheap T-shirt and, like, eat, like, canned beans yeah. For three days sure. or a week, just to just to remind himself that life could be crappy, uh-huh. uh, and, and that it made everything else better. And and this is somewhat in alignment with that. It it is. I mean, I think Stoicism. You know, if you go back to two thousand years ago, whether it's Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or, or Seneca, uh, th- this idea is is not a new idea, but it's a reaction to a new problem. We're in an unprecedented post-industrial age where we have more access to more plastic crap than we've ever had in, in, in human history. And so we have more access to, to food, not necessarily good food, as you know, but, but access to, to calories, basically. And, and we have more access to, to all of these things, whether you're, you, you go to the, the Walmart superstore that's going to be down the street from 98% of your listeners. Uh, you, you have access to these things, and, and they're, not, they're not making us any, any happier and I think the Stoic, the, the Stoic philosophy, or in fact any you know, major world religion, we'll have people when we go out on tour, they'll they'll come to us. And I was in Alabama last year. And the this young Christian couple came up to us and said, "It's so great to see a couple of young Christians out here spreading Jesus's message." And then uh, I, I was in Seattle uh, a month or two later, and someone came up and said, "It's great to see two guys out here spreading these Buddhist maxims." <laughs> and, then, and then toward the end of the year, I got an email from, from someone who said, did you know that Muhammad was the original minimalist? And, and all this tells me is whether it's religion or stoicism or Henry David Thoreau and Emerson, and it tells me that, that there are these common principles or what I would call common values. And while many of our, our beliefs may be different, we end up getting to the same path, and, and this the, the, this path of minimalism is really a, a new path that, that has been tread over the last 10, 15 years, 20 years. I mean, you can go back to voluntary simplicity even in the 60s, which is slightly different, but not, not considerably different. And, and we realize that, you know what, we have a new problem that a lot of these old ideas work really well for. 
I live really close to the ocean, so what I can do is I just take all the plastic stuff that I don't want and I just put it right in the ocean to <laughs> cut out the middleman so it just goes right into the fish. Like it, is, does that make me a bad person? Uh, for listeners, if you're offended, you don't know me because I, I don't do any of that stuff. But, but yeah, we, we're creating insane amounts of waste streams, like you said, buying just cheap plastic crap. At, at the same time, like there's a, it's a hard thing. If, if someone gets minimalism, uh, gets lit, or gets a fire lit under them for minimalism, you could say, mm-hmm. and says, all right, I'm, I own too much crap. How do I decide what possessions to keep and which ones to get rid of? Like, how did you do that when you first decided you wanted to do this? For me, I, I started small. I, 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 uh, well, I started with the question, how might your life be better with less? And, and I think that's an important question to ask because you'll identify what the benefits are specifically for you. And those benefits will keep you motivated because I'll be honest with you. Decluttering for me is kind of boring. Like I don't get motivated to to clean out my closet, and so I need I need a bigger motivation. Now there are some people who say I really love decluttering my house. That's great, and I envy you because I don't. Right. But for most of us, we need some sort of, of leverage to to keep us going, give us that inspiration that we need. And, and so um, I started with that question, and then I decided to get rid of one item a day for 30 days just to see what would happen. Now, obviously, the average American household, 300,000 items, getting rid of one item a day isn't going to put a huge dent, but it gave me the momentum I needed. And of course, the end result was I got rid of way more than 30 items in the first 30 days because you know, as you search your cabinets and your car and your hallways and your office and, and, and your bedrooms and closets and basement, you, you get this momentum and you're and letting go becomes this sort of kind of personal challenge for you. And, and that's what happened for me. In fact, Ryan and I, uh, the guy I run The Minimalist with, we, we came up with, with something. We've had tens of thousands of people play this now. It started with that, that one thing a, a, a day idea, but ramped it up a little bit. We call it the 30-day minimalism game. And so the way that it works is uh, it allows you to to let go of some stuff and give you some accountability with some friendly competition. So you partner up with someone, a friend, a family member, a coworker, an enemy, whoever you want to get rid of some stuff with, right? And you start at the beginning of a month. So the first day of the month, you each get rid of one item. The second day of the month, two items. The third day of the month, three items, so forth and so on. So it starts off really easy, gets you that that momentum that you need, but it gets pretty difficult by the middle of the month because day 15, it's 15 items, or day 20, it's 20 items. Now, whoever goes the longest wins, so you can bet whatever you want, bet a dollar, a meal, or, or whatever you want. And, and uh, if you both make it to the end of the month, you've both won, though, because you've gotten rid of about 500 items, and, and you've really started down this path of, of letting go of the things that no longer bring you joy, no longer serve a purpose, no longer add value to your life. So then, where did you end up? How many possessions do you have? I don't know. I, I don't count my stuff, but I did once as a joke. And uh, because I saw these people like getting really extreme with with minimalism, right? Especially when I was first turned on to it. And, and I think we're all sort of voyeurs on the internet. And we, we see a picture of, of this person and the 52 things they own, and they're all surrounded by it. So the guy I mentioned earlier, Colin Wright, he's in our, in our documentary, Minimalism. And there's a picture from him early on where everything he owns is surrounding him. And, and, be, and it looks appealing because you get that visual sense of, of minimalism. But, but for me, uh, I knew I was never going to win that game because I saw a guy who owned 15 items. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, I have more, more than 15 items on my person right now. How could I ever win this game? And, and so as a joke, I, I wrote about the 288 items I own. But the way that I came to that 
was, yeah, I noticed a few people who were counting their items. They were like grouping all of their socks together as one item. I'm like, wait a minute. So I just grouped a bunch of, I grouped all my clothes together as one item, right? I grouped my <laughs> books together as one, as, as one item. And the, the truth is that, that I continue to let go because my life continued to change. When I first embraced minimalism at age 28, my life was appreciably different seven years ago from what it is now. I certainly didn't have a three-year-old. I was single at the time because my marriage had just ended. And so those things uh, that I had in my life then, I, many of those things I still don't still have, but, but the things that I brought in over the last seven years, I'm still being very deliberate about, okay, do I really need this? Is this essential? Is it going to augment my experience of life or is it a, is it a pacifier? Uh, and if it's a pacifier, then ultimately it becomes an anchor. And that, that word anchor is a really interesting word in our culture when, when you think about it because we use it as a compliment often. Oh, Dave, you're such an anchored person. And then you think about it for a second, like, well, what, what is an anchor? Well, an anchor is a thing that keeps the ship at bay, right? It keeps it from going out into the sea and sort of being free and roaming about. And, and, and I had all of these anchors in my life that kept me from, from living the life that I wanted to lead. And so I need to make sure that I'm, I'm some anchors are okay, that they, they serve a purpose for a period of time, but I don't want to be so anchored that I'm going to be stuck in perpetuity. So do you believe consumerism is bad? I, I think, well, I think consumption isn't inherently bad. I, I think corporatism or consumerism is inherently problematic. And, and, and the reason being is we all need some things in our life that, that uh, unless we're, we're, you know, we're really trying to deprive ourselves, but when the thing ends up being the end goal, it's the same thing you know, if you're working. If you're working only for money, you're not going to feel very fulfilled by that, that decision long term. There are many times where it's necessary. In order to, For me, it was getting out of debt. I had to continue working at a, at a career I didn't love so that I could, so I could pay down the debt, but I had an end game in mind. And I think the same thing is true with our stuff. Quite often, the stuff ends up being the the point the purpose uh, of these things and then and then we realize like oh man maybe these things aren't making me happy but then of course i don't think happiness is the point either Uh, in fact i think sometimes the pursuit of happiness is is the problem in our society it's the reason we we buy many of these things because we think they're going to make us happy we mistake ephemeral pleasure for for long-term lasting happiness or contentment I think the point is actually living a more meaningful life, uh, aligning your short-term actions with your long-term values. And if you're able to do that, I think happiness is just a really great byproduct of living a more meaningful life. Uh, Yeah, choosing to do meaningful things matters a lot. And one of the things that, that drives consumerism, which is oftentimes not meaningful, is advertising. Yeah. And so people see like 5,000 ads a day yeah. uh, if they're an average person. And there's about $180 billion a year spent on advertising. So how do you fight or how do you recommend that people fight the the urge to buy more stuff because they keep seeing ads? Yeah, I think we have to be aware. We're, we're never going to cut out you know all of the advertisements. And, and advertisements, again, are another thing where it's not inherently 
bad. Uh, I think quite often most advertisements tend to just they suck, right? They're they're not very creative. They're they're not informative. Uh, they're not they're not really adding much to our lives. I think there are some people who can do ads in a way that is genuine, that aligns with their values, and and those are few and far between. Though I'm noticing a lot of podcasts that that do do it in a way that is in line with their message. You know, it's not. You know, you're not going to be advertising for Marlboro anytime soon on your podcast. At least I hope. It's a it's a tough one because I, I get a lot of inquiries uh, for sure. Bulletproof Radio for ads. And at first I'm like, I don't really want to do any ads. But at the same time, people have no idea how expensive it is to host and, and produce a, a podcast. Like it, it is a very meaningful amount of time and energy and dollars. Yeah. And I, I like to break even on that. Sure. And I do get a chance to talk about Bulletproof Coffee. But there's also... This this mindset I have in bulletproof content, like I reach about ten million people a month through, through all the different channels, so that's big. Like one of the top twenty health influencers out there. That means though that if I'm wasting people's time, that I'm essentially killing hundreds of people, like full human lifetimes. If I waste one minute of time for ten million people, I don't know how many million minutes are in a life lifetime off the top of my head, but it's probably around that. Mm-hmm. So that means if I have ads that don't serve people. I'm actually like like wasting lifetimes, just like bad bad red light settings on uh, in traffic lights waste lifetimes and lifetimes every day just of having people sit there doing nothing yeah. when they could have been like playing with their kids or doing anything meaningful. So I, I work really hard on that with my team. It's like our ads are there to help people like like make decisions that are going to improve the quality of life, like make them better people. Otherwise, I wouldn't take their time and I wouldn't spend money on getting the ads up. But it's it's I do think a lot about that, and I think a lot of people just like, okay, how much do I spend on an ad in order to get how much money back? Uh, but that's like, it's like the perspective, are you giving back or are you taking, are you using advertising as a, as a way of, of improving things or as, as a, actually an act of service, or are you using ads as an act of manipulation? And, and there's the, unfortunately, with some of the minimalist lifestyle, there's that, I just need to make enough money so I can live on a beach. Right, and I've, I've got to just you know play the numbers and run these scammy internet marketing things, and, and like it, that kind of just, just it, it just feels bad to me. It, it, how much of that is part of minimalism? Like I just have to make enough money from some from some pathway. Yeah, I, I don't think money is bad. I, I grew up really poor in, in Dayton, Ohio, um, on food stamps and welfare, government assistance, you know, WIC programs, and and. I thought the reason that we were so discontented when I was growing up is because we didn't have a lot of money. And while that was certainly a, a contributing factor, it was only one of, of many factors. And I didn't realize that. So when I turned 18, I didn't go the whole college route. I went and got the, the sales job. And I figured out pretty quickly, if you work 60 or 70 hours a week, you can start making good money. And so by age 19, I was making $50,000 a year, which was more than I ever saw my parents make. And, and of course, I... Um, I, I I thought that $50,000 a year was going to make me happy, right? But then when I was making it, I, I, you know, I was spending $65,000 a year. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. If $50,000 was going to make me happy, maybe I just need to adjust for inflation. And so I continued to work my way up the ladder throughout, throughout my 20s. And what I realized by the end of my 20s is that, you know what? The discontent didn't come from the lack of money when I was growing up. It came from repeated bad decisions. And by making more money throughout my 20s and, and, and becoming relatively wealthy in my 20s, um, for a guy in Dayton, Ohio, making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, that's, that, that's a big deal, for, especially for a guy in his late 20s. That I realized that, I, that all that did was, 
was compound the bad decisions I was making. I now had more money to spend on bad decisions. And so it's true. Uh, uh, money doesn't buy happiness, but neither does poverty. So I'm not, I'm not, advocating, <laughs> I'm not advocating a lifestyle of poverty. I'm advocating a, a lifestyle of being more deliberate with whatever resources we have. And so whether that means uh, you're below the poverty line or you're wealthy, that it's going to be important for you to to use whatever resources you have, including your money, your time, your attention. Use those as effectively as you can. It turns out there's actually a number uh, for how much it costs to buy happiness. And I, I gave a talk at the third Bulletproof conference on this, and the number is 75,000. Mm-hmm. And th- there's a study that shows people's happiness level does grow, go up a little bit with each dollar they earn up to $75,000 because that's the, the point where you've covered healthcare costs, food, housing, and communications and transportation. So when you have your basic needs covered, additional dollars don't make you any happier. But if you're making $30,000, making $75,000 actually will measurably make you happier because you're less stressed and less worried about, like, how do I put food on the table? And if you have a minimalist lifestyle, maybe the number is lower than $75,000 because you've cut your spend substantially. Maybe the number is only you know, 42,000 or whatever it is, but right. there is a number where like, man, I'm struggling to make ends meet. And if you're struggling, struggling is the opposite of, of, of happiness. You can be happy while struggling. It just takes a pretty enlightened person to do that. And most of us aren't there. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. We, we have a segment in the documentary about, uh, about income and, and, and happiness and, and the correlation between the two. And, and while I agree with you that, that there are many circumstances where money can incrementally improve your happiness, it's going to improve happiness based on, on the, the level of, of security that you already have with an existing lifestyle. I'll give you an example. When I walked away from the corporate world making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, the first year I walked away, my initial plan, by the way, was not to start the minimalists.com and, and, and go down this whole path. That's been a really beautiful accident, and I'm grateful for everything that I've been able to contribute and the growth that I've gotten personally from it. But I, I, my initial plan was to be a barista at a coffee shop two blocks from my house and make enough money so that I could write fiction full-time. I've, I've always wanted to write literary fiction, and, and that was my thing. I was just going to do that. And so the first year that I walked away from the corporate world, I made $23,000, which is just above the, the poverty line in the United States. And I, I realized that I actually had better control of my finances that year than I had most years throughout my 20s. And I was being a lot more deliberate with the few dollars I had because I was making better decisions. Now, is that saying that I'm allergic to money? No, certainly not. Uh, the question is, what am I going to do with that money as I get it? And as I've been able to do now when we have different successful projects is I've been able to contribute a lot more. I've been able to invest in other people. So we have we have a staff of people with, that help us through our various projects. Um, but I've also been able to do a lot, of, a lot of cool things. Like last year, we did a, an entire year of contribution. We built a elementary school in Laos. We, we funded a high school for a year in Kenya. We built four clean water wells in Malawi. And uh, we've done a bunch of different U.S.-based projects as well, uh, helping out at soup kitchens or at Habitat for Humanity. These other ways to contribute beyond ourselves in a meaningful way that I, you know, I just to be honest, I wasn't doing when I had the, the other resources to do that. It, it's true that having experiences is, uh, they don't have any weight, 
when you're done with them. They, they take yeah. money to do it. But I, I'm really grateful that I've, uh, uh, that I've made decisions to, to priorities, prioritize quality of life uh, and having experiences that are, are unusual over you know, buying stuff. And I drive a pickup truck. It's a nice pickup truck. Uh, but I also like run a, a brain hacking facility in Seattle that's been like like something I've wanted to do for 20 years where I, I can have better cognitive function which you can't put a price tag on that like like right. it, that's gonna that's gonna be with me every minute of every day whether I'm sorting my sock drawer or giving a big presentation it doesn't really matter but like like my experience of life is better for having invested there than in you know buying as whatever the, some other big expensive thing so it's yeah. It, it's a, it always does go through my mind when I think about stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. How, how long have you been doing that, the center in Seattle? I wasn't familiar with that. Um, I've been doing it with partners for about six years. It's called 40 Years of Zen. But I opened this about... Oh, yeah. I, I, know, about four, I know 40 Years of Zen. I didn't know that was in Seattle. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, we have a $2.5 million facility now, and we're bringing executives through. And I, I go there about once, once every month or two, and like my level of cognitive function, just like, like we had to actually build new hardware and software, uh, where like that's a crazy investment. Yeah. So like, okay, I want my brain to do this. There's nothing to do it, so we're going to do that, and then I'm going to share it with it with some people. Wow. Uh, but like that's that's one of those things where I'm so incredibly fortunate to be in a position to do that. But the first thing I did was, how do I share this? Like, how do I get people through here? And it's expensive. Like, it's hard to do this. There's a team of neuroscientists. But um, for me, that is an investment in, in myself and in the world rather than, like, a luxury, you know, penthouse somewhere or something. Where, like, like that provides experiential benefits that I don't think you get from acquiring possessions. Uh, and it also, everyone who goes through there walks away, and it's like a degree. No one can take your degree away from you. Like they can say, you don't have it. You're like, sorry, I went to the school. Like, like I have the knowledge. It's inside me. Right. So you, you don't, it doesn't cost you anything to carry that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why uh, physically training yourself, mentally training yourself, meditating, all those things are investments of energy into yourself. And I'm just like, I, I, want, I want more out of that. Uh, so it, it, it's a weird way of thinking, though, because I, I think most of the time it, it's around, you know, I, I need a, a second home or a vacation home or whatever. And this for me was actually a big financial risk, uh, where like I, I still make house payments. I have a salary like everyone else because I have uh, professional investors in Bulletproof. But I'm like, this is the most important experience I could think of for myself and for my wife and even for my kids. So that that's where I put energy. But it's not minimalism. It, yeah. It's actually like more the Peter Diamandis style. Like mm -hmm. if you if you have enough assets to make a difference, you have like a moral obligation to make a difference. Yeah. And if you instead focus on on you. Know, basically having less, what if that means you don't have the resources to achieve the mission that you set out to achieve? Do you ever think about that? Yeah, I, I do. And, and I think it's important to realize that contribution, it, when you think about it on, on just a small level, I think we are in, we, we're inherently wired to, to contribute beyond ourselves, to add value to other people's yeah, lives, basically. Are. And, and, you know, the, the easiest example for everyone to think about is when you listen to a podcast or you see an article online or you read a book that you really love or, or you try some type of food or a restaurant that you, that you found value in, your first inclination is to share that with someone else you care about. Here, let me forward this to you in an email because your hope is that they will get a, a similar amount of value from that, 
that thing or that experience that, that you did. And I think if you were to just tweeze that out and, and apply it to a grander scale, that's one of the things that minimalism has allowed me to do more than anything else is contribute beyond myself to the world around me. And, and so there are two reasons it's allowed me to do that. It's one is it's just freed up my time and resources to be able to focus more on contribution. But two, it's, it's allowed me to grow immensely, grow more than I've ever grown in my life over the last seven years. And the more you grow, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's an old apothem. The more you grow, the more you have to give. But that ends up being true. I mean, and so as you become a better version of yourself, I mean, they think about you when uh, you were ostensibly successful and in, in, uh, at age 26, 27, and, but only narrowly successful didn't have the ability to, to give in the same way because you weren't, you weren't the most functional version of, of yourself, the most optimal version of yourself. And I think the same way now is, is I'm only as good as my, my weakest value, whether, whether that's health or rela- the people in my life, the relationships or my creativity or growth or, or, or giving. You know, those, those are the, the core values in my life. And, and if I want to be able to, to give, I have to have something to give. And, and minimalism has allowed me to grow more than, more than I ever anticipated. Again, that wasn't one of the initial benefits for me where I'm like, I'm going to let go of my stuff so I have more to give. That was a hard, a hard path to, to try to, to travel down. But once you figure out that I'm less focused on these things that don't matter, well, what does matter to me? Well, giving matters to me. Oh, well, then I can focus on it. Uh, that, makes, that makes so much sense. It's counterintuitive, but uh, mm-hmm. for listeners, when you, you think about it, if you have less clutter, you have more energy, that does give you more to give back in whatever way you give back, which can be on a very local level, and, and that's no more or less noble than giving back on a, on a global level. Like, you're, you're doing what you're here to do. Yeah. There's another kind of overconsumption that has nothing to do with buying stuff, and it's maybe more damaging, and it's just technology consumption. Like, we've got teenagers spending nine hours a day using media. People spend 50 minutes on Facebook every day. People check their phones eight billion times a day. And now there's a new psychological uh, word called nomophobia for people who have a fear of not having their mobile device on them at all times. Yes. I, I think we I all have that to a certain extent, right? I, I mean, have you ever, like, twitched for, for the device? I said, I, I reached for it and it wasn't there and had a, a, slight, a slight bit of panic. I don't get a panic response, but I've that, going back to that brain hacking stuff. Like I've pretty much taken my panic buttons away. Okay. Like, like I've reprogrammed the, the core neurological response because, uh, like having a, a being able to be peaceful even when really big things are happening is is the most priceless thing that I know. Yeah. And uh, I I do though. Like I have I buy pants that have a pocket in the right place to keep the phone away from my uh, my main equipment. Same here, uh, so to speak. And it, it's like the phone's always there, and uh, I don't. I, I have habits. Like if I, I move, uh, if I sit down, I take it out because I don't want the phone transmitting against me. And I put it in airplane mode a bunch of the time and things like that. But uh, I, I don't know that that's a bad thing, given that the value that a phone provides, if you use mm-hmm. it with awareness and consciousness, is much higher than the risk of distraction if, if you're in charge of yourself. But I, I don't know that most of us are in charge of ourselves is the problem. You're absolutely right. And so for me, I, I did this experiment a few years ago, and I've done it one other time since. I got rid of my phone for two months. And it was shortly after I'd gotten rid of internet at home and, and, and gotten rid of my TV, which 
I think most of us are addicted to, to TV. Even with all of the internet and everything else is going on, I think the average person watches something like 35 hours a week of TV in, in America, which is unbelievable to me. But I, I get it. For me, it was just sort of on like a fireplace all the time, just transmitting um, you know, bad news most for the most part. But anyway, I, I got rid of my phone for a couple of months, and I realized – you're, you're confronted with a special kind of loneliness once you've gotten rid of all these major pacifiers, all these glowing screens, not having internet at home. By the way, I don't think internet's bad. I just got rid of it for a month, and it was the most productive month of my life, so I didn't bring it back in. Um, and, and someone who – so now I'll schedule time to, to go do that. But with the phone, like, I realized how much I was pacifying myself. So, But I also realized that I, it did add value to my life. And so when I brought it back in, I did so in a much different way. I no longer have Facebook on my phone or Twitter on my phone. Um, I, I no longer have uh, – I don't check email on my phone anymore. I, have, I don't have an email app on my phone. Uh, and I actually use it now to – Message people uh, and mostly for, get directions. Get directions. What else do people do with their phones if all that stuff? I'm kidding. Well, shockingly, <laughs> I can even make a phone call with occasionally, which is unbelievable. They do that? I know, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> my phone still does that, and so now I'm I, I'm able to use that more deliberately. But whenever I catch myself twitching for, I, I knew I had a problem, by the way, and the reason the the, the impetus of, of 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 letting go of that for a while was I was at the urinal. And I caught myself reaching for it. My phone wasn't there. I had left it in the car. And I felt that twinge of panic where I'm like, oh, my goodness, I've got – where's my phone? Oh, my God, it's lost. Like, what a, how, do I, how do I Snapchat right now? I, I get that same problem. <laughs> yeah. How am I going to piss without Snapchatting? <laughs> yeah. And, and so um, – but now I, I do things like leave – like right now I don't have my phone with me. It's, uh, it's in the car. And um, I'll do that whenever I go to someone's house or whatever. Um, I, I make it so that it's accessible, but not all necessarily easily accessible. And, and I've also done something recently. I've, I've been doing an experiment over the last couple of weeks. I moved the phone over to grayscale, and it makes everything so much less interesting on the phone. <laughs> and so I don't twitch for it. Like, I don't feel the need. Like, you pick it up, you're like, oh, that's boring. And uh, this is just a dumb tool that does what I need it to do. Great, because that's what I really need it for is, is to, to you know, do what I need it to do. And so I think I think – experimentation like that is important. Getting outside of that comfort zone, make yourself a little uncomfortable, uh, allows you to to grow in that way as well. I call it the discomfort zone. But be, being in, in that place of discomfort allows you to figure out, okay, here's what I actually need this tool for. And here are the other things that, that are just you know, wasting my time. It's an interesting conundrum. Like I, I read a lot on my phone. Because I have little kids and I, I have a really intense schedule. Uh, some of the other podcasts recently, I, I just was talking about this. But I use my calendar and like every minute of my calendar is filled up. I work with an assistant who helps me do that. So like I have when am I going to do yoga? When am I going to do biohacking? Uh, when am I driving the kids to school? When am I having lunch? Like if it's not on there, I'm just not going to do it. Because there's so much external pressure and just internal. Because I have a really big goals for Bulletproof. Uh, I'm, I'm disrupting big food and, and like, I don't want to waste even one drop of energy in a day. So that means though, that if I'm going to get a chance to read either the latest news and then share it with like a hundred thousand people with some commentary that might be helpful to them, it, it means that I'm probably going to look at Facebook while I'm peeing 
right? Mm-hmm. And I don't even, and I used to be like, oh, like I, I should pee mindfully. And I'm like, screw that noise. Like <laughs> I actually am getting more benefit from reading this stuff and taking care of a biological function that yeah. didn't require mindfulness than I am by just like taking a deep breath and focusing on the oneness with the pee. Like, like, like there's, there's a limit <laughs> to the, the level of peace that you can have yeah. when you actually consume information that is useful and fun and interesting. But I'm also not looking at like, you know, Kanye West's like latest, uh, song or whatever like uh-huh. i i don't i i trimmed all that stuff out of my out of my feed so i don't even know sure. who the celebrities are for the most part and maybe that's a part of, of consuming less is maybe consuming consciously so you're you're spending your attention on stuff that benefits you or stuff you care about instead of something you don't care about how, how do you reconcile that aspect where instead of being minimalist you're like i just maximum value per mm-hmm. unit of energy spent yeah well i mean so so back to the reaching for the phone at the urinal that was the opposite of conscious. It was it was out of mm. habit, right? It was it was just the this this twitch of reaching for my because I had this trigger of unzipping my fly. Now I need to reach for my back pocket, and it's like, <laughs> well, wait a minute. No, I don't have to do that. But can I? Could I do those things consciously? Sure. I think in in your world, you what you've talked about is you have prioritized your day through scheduling, and and I think. That is very effective for someone who's in a situation like you are. In fact, you look at my calendar and it's going to be fairly similar. It's going to be regimented in a way that works really well for me. Um, the uh, Greg McEwen talks about this in his book Essentialism. He he talked about um, you know, priorities and how that word wasn't a plural until the 20th century. Like when you think about the word priority. Yeah. It, it just literally means the thing before or the first thing, right? And now we talk about our first things, our priorities. In fact, uh, when, when you see the, the sort of gross exaggeration of this, uh, the United Nations uh, a couple of years ago uh, had a list of their 163 priorities. Well, if you have 163 priorities, it tells me that you probably don't have any priorities at all. And so the, tr- the truth is the reason that you have your schedule so regimented like that is because it allows you to say no to 99% of the, the sort of inputs or requests or these discrete bits of information that are constantly coming at you. You're being barraged with all this information. You get to say no to all that because here's everything I'm on, on this device that says yes. I'm going to say yes to these things that are in my calendar. They're very deliberately chosen. So this is a form of, of minimalism. Uh, but But it's about saying yes to these and knowing that if you say yes to any of these other discrete bits of information, you're actually going to have to say no to these most important things that you, you've outlined your day with already. When people say like safety is the top priority, like, like car manufacturers always say that. I'm like, actually, I, let me just say this straightforward. Getting there was the top priority. Yeah. Because right? the safest thing to do is don't get in the car. Right. right. So we lie to ourselves about priorities at all. And, and I feel like there really is a stack-weighted thing and and i've told my team uh my my executive support team like look here's the list of priorities stack ranked in order number one is health biohacking and biohacking is not the same thing as health but bottom line is if i'm not doing things to make myself beyond healthy to make myself stronger and better every day or at least every week like i'm going in the wrong direction i'm going to live to 180 years old that requires many small behavioral changes and you got to make time for those so that comes first, not last. When I was younger, that came last. That was the place where you just, whatever, like it'll take care of itself. You forsake uh, it. Number, yeah, and number two is family, right? Because you're not going to really spend quality time with your family if you feel like crap or if you're tired all the time because you didn't invest in number one. And then number three is 
is bulletproof in, in, in his work. Because if I put my job in front of my family <laughs> or in front of my, my, my physical biology, uh, I'm not going to do a good job at work. Right? So it, it, it seems like there's a dependency there. Uh, and I, I finally just spelled it out really quickly because it's so common, even amongst like the guys with uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, I've had the, the pleasure of like training their brains or um, just hanging out with them, getting to know them. A lot of them are, are desperate from a health perspective and they have unhappy relationships or they're drinking uh, and like they're, they're not happy. And it's, I think, because they put others before them. You put yeah. your company before you, put your family before you. But like, look, it, if you don't take time to relax and, and to your point, to pay attention to what, what matters most, uh, you're not going to have the energy and you're not going to have the focus and the awareness to like be nice to your employees, to do the right thing. You're kind of walking in the fog. And I think it sounds like you experienced that. I certainly experienced that yeah. uh, when I hit 300 pounds. And I was, I was not just 300 pounds. I was a 300-pound asshole. Right? And, <laughs> <laughs> there's a big difference there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny you mentioned that. Because, so so uh, you call those priorities. I, I would just call those values for me. Um, yeah, there you go. Uh, because I didn't know what my values were because I was so focused on that other stuff. And so yeah. by, by clearing that excess out of the way, letting go of that which was superfluous, I I was able to figure out okay my like you my health number one priority second for me was relationships because I forsook the people closest to me because I was spending all my time with networking buddies and executives and coworkers and they weren't inherently bad people but that meant that I didn't have any time left for the people closest to me the people who I said were my priority but they were really just lip service priorities right right and and then the third thing for me was like passion or creativity you know for you you say bulletproof that that's your creative uh, um, vehicle is bulletproof it's how you're creative with with your books and and with your podcast with your website and and the products that you create that add value to other people's lives and so i didn't feel like i was truly creative in in, in the way that i could be i wasn't 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 being my most creative self. And so, yeah, those, those are the values. Ryan and I wrote about, about those in, in our first book. It was a book called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. And, and started with the stuff, getting that out of the way, and then saying, okay, here are my values or, or priorities. Here's what's most important to me. I would encourage everyone listening uh, to, to do that. Sit down and figure out what's most important to you. And one of the, the coolest exercises that really got me started thinking about this was back in business school. Uh, at Warden, uh, one of uh, one of my professors, we we graphed out how much energy we put into these various things, like your health, your social life, your family, your career, uh, all all these different domains of life. And you're like, how much energy did I put in there, and how satisfied am I? And look, what becomes glaringly obvious is like, I spend eighty percent of my time on the areas that suck, and I don't get any response. Like I'm not getting a return on my investment there. And then uh, his uh, his take on this. Uh, is that then what you should do is you should, well, do something different. Ask the stakeholders in that part of thing, like, what, what should I do differently? Or find activities that give you benefits in multiple domains. And I've been making a practice of that uh, uh, for, for quite a while. And it, and it really helps because it's part of this minimalist thinking here. Like, okay, what am, I, uh, what, what am I spending my energy, my focus, my attention on? And how do I spend less of that? in order to get more happiness out of it. And, and for me, that, that's why I focus in that order on those three things, on uh, health and biological wellness, uh, family, and, uh, and Bulletproof, and you know, the, the big mission there, uh, because I, I, that's where the most return happens. And if I, I, don't, like, I don't know how to, how to cut any more out, 
because otherwise they would. Yeah, well, I think ultimately you're right. We, we, we are what we focus on. Uh, at the end of the day. And so if we're focusing on whether it's it's consumption, well, if you focus on, on consumption primarily, well, then you become a consumer. Mm-hmm. That's how, how businesses talk about people as consumers. Uh, if we focus on creativity, then we are creators, right? And, and it's really up to us to decide what we need to focus on. What you're pointing out pretty eloquently here on The Minimalist is that, look, you're not getting much return at all. You, know, you buy something, you get a dopamine hit, and then I gotta throw it in the closet, and then right. next week, you know, you find something else. And so if that's not working for you, where else could you invest that? And if you did, what would the impact on, on your, net, your net picture of what makes you who you are, uh, what would it be? And I think it's pretty meaningful, which is why I wanted to have you on the show. Well, I think that the, the price really goes way beyond the price tag, as you just alluded to, right? Because, yeah, we buy the thing. And we have, in just in the United States alone, we have $12 trillion worth of, of consumer debt. Um, it's hard for us to even wrap our mind around $12 trillion. I mean, it's, uh, uh, the, the stat I saw was if you were to, to give away, uh, uh, spend a million dollars every day, you could have done that since the birth of the Buddha, and you still wouldn't have spent $1 trillion by now. And we have $12 trillion in debt. The average American has four uh, uh, active credit cards in his or her wallet. The, the um, uh, one in 10 Americans has 10 or more active credit cards. But then the price beyond just the, the, the actual cost is like, well, now I have to take care of the thing. I have to store it. I have to clean it. I have to put gas in it and change its oil and feed it and whatever it may be. We don't, we don't, have all, we don't keep in mind all these other additional costs that, that, that weigh on the back of our mind and ultimately end up costing us way more than the thing itself costs. Um, very, very well said. Now, if someone came to you tomorrow and they said, look, based on everything you've learned, I want to perform better at every single thing I do, uh, just as a human being, not, not at work or sports or anything else, just I want to be better at everything. What are the three most important pieces of advice you'd have for them? The first thing I would say is uh, with respect to stuff, let it go. It's, it's just stuff. And, and it has only the meaning that you give it. The things don't have meaning unless we give it a, a meaning, right? Uh, second thing I, I would say is it has to do with the people in our lives. You, you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. And what I mean by that is you can't try to change someone, make them, mold them into what you want them to be, but you can surround yourself by supportive people with similar interests and values and they may even have different beliefs yeah i look at me and ryan we have radically different personalities we have different belief systems different political leanings but but we have similar values and and so i surround myself with people who who make me a a better version of myself and the last thing I, i would say is try to love people and use things because the opposite never works yeah that that's really good advice um, using people and loving things is is pretty uh, unattractive, I would say. Yeah, so definitely. Re- really nice, uh, really nice piece of advice. I've never heard that last one, but very eloquently put. Uh, thanks a lot, Joshua, for coming on Bulletproof Radio. Where can people find out more about your podcast and your books and things like that? You can just go, we keep it pretty simple. At the, we just go to theminimalists.com, and we're at the minimalists on all the social medias. Okay, that's minimalists with an S at the end, yeah. right? Theminimalists.com, yep. Cool. All right. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to iTunes 
And this will take exactly zero additional consumption for you to show gratitude by leaving a five-star review. Reviews tell other people that this is worth listening to. This is time well spent, that it wasn't uh, basically a, a waste of your energy and your time. And you actually did consume your commute or your workday with what you just heard. So if it was useful, uh, please say thanks just by leaving a review. Have a great day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.